Reverend Dr. Dwight N. Hopkins. Dr. Hopkins is a professor of theology at the University of Chicago Divinity School. He teaches in the areas of contemporary theology, black theology, and liberation theologies. He is a graduate of Harvard University and earned two doctoral degrees, one from Union Theological Seminary in New York City and the second from, Cape Town, from University of Cape Town in South Africa. He is also an ordained minister in the American Baptist Church. He has written many books. I'll just mention several of them. Being Human, Race, Culture, and Religion. Walk Together, Children, Black and Womanist Theologies. Heart and Head, Black Theology, Past, Present, and Future. Down, Up, and Over, Slave Religion and Black Theology. This morning, Dr. Hopkins will speak on Martin Luther King and the future of multicultural America. Following his talk, you're welcome to join him in the fellowship hall for continued conversation, which will be moderated by uh, Professor Regina Shantz Stolzos. Please help me welcome Dr. Hopkins. Good morning. Uh, it's a privilege and a pleasure to be here with you. And I want to thank Goshen College for extending the invitation to me, in particular, Odalette Nance, who has been a guide, muse, right-hand person to get me here, uh, Steve Nolt as well. And I met your gracious president and his wife, President Brennan, at breakfast this morning. So again, thank you for all those others who were behind the scenes, students and staff who make these things possible because what a, people who appear out front are often shouldered up by many, many other people. So thank you so much. It really is a pleasure. I want to share some remarks with you this morning on the title, Martin Luther King Jr. and the Future of Multicultural America. Martin Luther King Jr. is recognized as one of the greatest U.S. citizens not only in this country, but around the world. He has become synonymous with faith, love, justice, compassion, sacrifice, and witnessing on behalf and with those who struggle to benefit from the opportunities of America. In a very interesting way, the social context in which he lived and died parallel this season of profound crisis and uncertainty both in the United States and on the global stage. As we know, Dr. King was deeply involved in the civil rights movement. It was a valiant effort to provide basic guarantees of liberty for U.S. citizens. In particular, he stood for the civil rights of black Americans who for too long had been relegated to the ranks of second-class citizens in a land where they had helped produce the wealth for elite families during the period of slavery. And at the end of his career, he had included a multicultural focus, a campaign to organize and speak for the brown, the black, the red, the yellow, and white brothers and sisters who were poor and locked out of the benefits of America. For King, it is only by beginning with the marginalized of our communities that we can guarantee a future multicultural America. In fact, his entire campaign was geared to this new vision of the United States. Though he emerged out of the Black Baptist Church, by the time of his death, he had chartered a major program to build a new coalition of conscience, a rainbow coalition of all peoples, of all colors. Like King's time, we too today face both an attack on civil rights as well as a movement to sustain gains and advance them further. Today, we still have controversy around such issues as affirmative action for people of color we still are challenged to include the cultural contributions of all Americans. And I would submit that what is at stake in these different controversies, just as it was in King's time, 
is not simply the admission of a few more black, brown, red, and yellow students. No, what is at stake is an entire philosophy on what America should be for all of its peoples. One philosophy believes that the nation should go back to a culture of rigid racial and ethnic asymmetry, similar to the period of slavery, or at least like the period of de jure segregation. Another philosophy believes that given the great mixtures of different races and ethnic groups and cultures within the borders of this country, America can become a beacon for racial equality, many cultures, and harmonious living regardless of the color of one's skin. Reverend King, moreover, operated in a context where poverty in America was so bad that the nation had to declare a national war on poverty. And I would argue that we are dealing with a similar phenomenon today. This time, however, instead of the federal government declaring a war on poverty, the federal government and the very small handful of families that privately own the majority of wealth in the United States, they have declared a war against those American citizens who are poor, especially black, brown, yellow, and red communities. And quiet as it's kept, a huge percentage of white brothers and sisters live in structural poverty. We are experiencing major layoffs of working class people. The news media often spend a great deal of time talking about the downsizing in corporate America as it pertains to white collar management. But we could double or triple the firing of workers of color and white workers across America. And to add insult to injury, governments are slashing safety net programs that in the past were taken for granted. There has been a radical shift in the country's culture and psyche that believes that a citizen no longer has an obligation to help those who are worse off than they are. There has been a further shift in ideology in the federal government to a perspective that the government should not use our tax monies to help the poor, but now the needs of the poor should be taken care of primarily by the private sector, by faith-based initiatives, or in the worst case scenario, the national government simply allows the poor to become poor. However, just as there is a downward spiral for those dwelling in structural poverty, particularly brown, black, red, in yellow communities, there is a simultaneous redistribution of wealth upward in the United States. Actually, the federal government is still playing a role in the issues of poverty and wealth, but, but this time it is providing increased tax breaks for the rich and granting huge and lucrative governmental contracts to wealthy corporations. And so for Dr. King, the war against the poor and the attack on the culture of people of color were, were not the end of his vision for a multicultural America. To really help the poor and to affirm the culture of all peoples of America, we need fundamentally peace. We need peace in America and we need peace in the world. From his famous April 4th 1967 speech entitled Beyond Vietnam until his assassination on April 4, 1968, Dr. King added his ethical challenge against the war in Vietnam. And again today, we are living in a similar context. The U.S. government and the handful of wealthy arms and oil corporations who are the primary beneficiaries of the U.S. colonial occupation in Iraq and Afghanistan. These prosecutors and beneficiaries of the war have reoriented our priority to such an extent that the projected 900 billion U.S. dollars demanded for the dropping of bombs on Baghdad is more important than using 900 billion U.S. dollars for eradicating poverty, ethnic inequality, and fostering the beauty of cultural diversity within the U.S. borders. Like Dr. King faced, we too are confronted by times of crisis. 
Yet times of crisis always offer us opportunity for growth and healthy change. And this is the good news. Fortunately, just as there were movements to create a healthy, new America during Reverend King's time, we too have what I like to call a new American movement. Throughout the United States, from high school to graduate school, there are pockets of people and groups working across multicultural lines. Some have organized against U.S. occupations of countries in the Persian Gulf. Others have joined hands to organize for different presidential candidates. Others have come together to share the cultures of their respective ethnic and racial groups. Different young people are showing us that as we embrace the beauty of our own particular cultural experiences, we need to share these experiences with all of America. To be an American is to feel like an American. It is to know that my language, my song, my dance, my cultural family values, my food, my clothing, my humor, my aspirations, my voice are all vital strands in the quilt which we call the United States of America. And King gave his life for the future of this type of America. To go deeper into the vision that Dr. King had for this future America, it is important for us to learn that King's life, particularly at the end of his career from 1966 to 1968, began to evolve. We have to remember that Dr. King had come a long way as he neared the end of his short life. From Montgomery, Alabama, throughout the South, eventually to Chicago and the North, plans for the second march on Washington called the Poor People's Campaign, and on to his final and fateful campaign in Memphis, Tennessee. And what many of us don't realize is Dr. King's final march on Washington was specifically named the Poor People's Campaign. This campaign was to end with a massive demonstration in Washington, D.C. in the spring of 1968. Even beginning in 1967, Dr. King traveled all over the United States organizing the Poor People's Campaign. And he said it was a multicultural, multiracial, and multi-ethnic campaign. And so King visited Native American reservations. He spent time in the barrios of America. He held conversations with Asian American brothers and sisters. He spoke to whites who were in economic pain. And of course, he continued to organize the black community. And as he pursued this journey, Dr. King began to focus his ministry more and more on the predicament and possibilities of the poor. He came to this belief, this radical focus on the poor, the least of those, those left out, based on several factors. By 1966, King felt that he had set the stage for new race relations in the U.S. with the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Bill and the 1965 Voting Rights Act. He was encouraged by these acts of success, but he then attempted to take the old civil rights coalition from the South into the ghettos of the North, particularly in Chicago. But his Northern journey proved to be much more brutal and strange than the familiar territory of Jim Crow South. When he arrived in the North, the urban riots presented a new challenge to his faith and his organizing skills. But at the same time, he began to experience resistance from some Northern white liberals who were willing to support him as long as he held and led civil rights struggles in the South. But it was a different issue when King began to shift 
his desegregation campaigns to the North. And of course, he finally decided to go public with his opposition to the Vietnam War. As a result of these new challenges, new directions, and new possibilities opened up. In fact, King indeed began to build that new coalition of conscience and a new movement explicitly aimed at supporting the poor, the poor of all colors and the poor of all races. He felt the time had finally come to advance the civil rights movement to a higher level, where the nation's poor, black, brown, yellow, red, and white would finally take center stage in the powerful, new, nonviolent, united front. Just a year before his death, Dr. King wrote the following words. He says, from issues of personal dignity, black people are now advancing to programs that impinge upon the basic system of social and economic control. At this level, black programs go beyond race and deal with economic inequality. And he finishes by saying, in pursuit of these goals, the white poor and all people of colors become involved and the potentiality emerges for a powerful alliance. Close quote. More and more, Dr. King felt compelled to focus on the margins of society, those without a voice to represent them nationally, and those at the bottom of this nation. He became increasingly sure that his calling as a minister and as an international ambassador of peace started with the poor. And even if it cost him his funding, and the support from his liberal black and white allies. In fact, between 1966 and 1968, if you listen and read his preaching and lecturing and speaking engagements, as well as his organizing efforts, they all began to revolve around gaining structural power for what he called, quote, the little ones among us. That is why his final campaign, the poor people's campaign, included a broad multicultural focus. Indeed, back in 1968, right before he was assassinated, King had already given us a definition of multiculturalism. Speaking exactly two months before his death, he said, quote, and when I say poor people, I'm not only talking about black people, there are poor people in the Puerto Rican community, in the Mexican-American community, the Indian community, the Appalachian white community. I'm talking about poor people's power, and that is what is needed today. Close quote. So we can see that for Dr. King, multiculturalism is not only different races and ethnic groups coming together. It also includes what he calls in his own words, quote, poor people's power. King's developments began to impact his understanding of Christianity. And even his reading of the Bible and how he interpreted the Bible became more influenced by this, this love for, this, this compassion for, this, this concern for the poor. For him, the Bible story of how Jesus suffered before his death and the tales about how Jesus was crucified could no longer be left at a general level of salvation because he saw himself as a Christian preacher. Dr. King felt that the bearing the cross for Christ meant supporting people who suffer and are locked out of the sun rays of the day. And he went on to challenge those with privileges to do the same thing. The nation he felt could reach its highest potential when the haves began to share with the have-nots. But this, this, this was not a lukewarm and empty moral challenge. For King, the earth's resources belonged to all peoples. So the rich 
had to give back to the lower classes in society. During the last couple of years of his life, King commented on this when he preached a sermon where he says, quote, I choose to identify with the underprivileged. I choose to identify with the poor. I choose to give my life for those who have been left out of the sunlight of opportunity. This is the way I'm going. If it means dying for them, I'm going that way. Close quote. So toward the end of his life, Dr. King interpreted his calling as a minister of the gospel of Jesus in such a radical and prophetic way that he felt anointed to launch a new campaign against the federal government in Washington, D.C., which, of course, was the symbol of the center of the power in the United States of America. And as we mentioned earlier, he called his second march on Washington the Poor People's Campaign. This great moral effort targeted the federal government power structure because the issue of poverty was not local, but national. Those who decided on the fate of the nation's poor had to be forced to provide relief for those who lacked adequate resources just to be human. And so to understand King's more life and death attitude of urgency toward eliminating poverty, we only have to compare the August 1963 March on Washington with the 1968 Poor People's Campaign. If we recall, in contrast to the 1963 march, where 250,000 people heard speeches, waited in the reflecting pool, and then left town the same day, King stated that the Poor People's Campaign would be radically different. Unlike the 1963 march, when aides to President John F. Kennedy stood near the sound system prepared to pull the plug on any speakers who criticized the Kennedy administration. The 1968 march would be controlled by the unemployed, working people, people of color, and other progressive supporters. For Reverend King, the 1968 march would, quote, in his own words, dramatize the whole economic problem of the poor. We are now trying to deal with the economic problems through massive protests, close quote. This new march on Washington would have thousands upon thousands of the poor of all colors descend on the nation's capital and stay there for months until the federal government passed meaningful legislation for the dispossessed of the land. Thousands of red, brown, black, yellow, and white would set up tents and camp out in Washington. And King believed that if fundamental change did not take place, then he would urge the poor to use nonviolent force to take over governmental buildings and even sit in in congressional offices. The Poor People's Campaign would usher in a new form of nonviolent militancy. Speaking about his own new nonviolent militant voice, King had this to say. He says, this action, the Poor People's Campaign, and the tactics of the Poor People's Campaign, he says, this action may take on disruptive dimensions. End quote. The federal government would no longer function in its normal way unless it first addressed the needs of the poor. And Dr. King continued to hammer this point home when he said, we got to go to Washington, we've got to camp in, put our tents in front of the White House, the federal government will have to come to terms with us because the nation will not move. There will be no rest in America. There will be no tranquility in this country until the nation comes to terms with our problem. Close quote. We can see that it was no accident 
that at the time of his assassination, King's two major projects included support for the black working class in Memphis, Tennessee, and organizing a multicultural movement of the poor to nonviolently dislocate the normal functioning of the U.S. government. The idea for the Poor People's Campaign was also a result of Dr. King's deepening analysis of class relations in the United States. The difference between those who own wealth and those who are poor. Earlier in his public career, he made this statement. He said, we try to aid the discouraged beggars in life marketplace, close quote. But a year before his death, he saw the need to not only help the beggar, but also reconstruct the causes forcing people to beg on our streets. And I read his words. He says, we are called to help the discouraged beggars in life's marketplace. But one day, we must come to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. He goes on to say, when you deal with this, you began to ask the question, who owns the oil? Let me repeat that one. Who owns the oil? Who owns the iron ore? And he closes by saying, why is it that people have to pay water bills in a world that is two-thirds water? Here, King makes a difference between income and wealth a crucial distinction. Income is money someone pays you for working for them. But wealth raises questions such as, who owns the shopping malls in our cities? Who owns the land in our cities? Who owns the airlines, the televisions, the radio industries, and where is the concentration of wealth? So when Dr. King questioned who owned the major resources and the production and distribution of these resources, he questioned the moral viability of the capitalist system in the United States. And so he called then on the voiceless in the society, his phrase he used a lot, the least, the last, the lowest, and the locked out, to rise up and claim their God-given humanity. And he asked them, he implored them, and he led them to carry out a nonviolent revolution against the system of capitalism. Let's hear his words again the last two years before his death. He says, the dispossessed of this nation, the poor, both black and white, live in a cruelly unjust society. They must organize a revolution against the injustice not against the lives of the persons who are their fellow citizens, but against the structures through which the society is refusing to take means which have been called for and which are at hand to lift the load of poverty. End quote. King's understanding of his ministry, his understanding of the Bible, his understanding of wealth and income began to expand. And just as his understanding of poverty began to broaden, his views on race relationships also began to develop in new and creative directions. He started to come to the conclusion that the civil rights movement faced a far broader evil than the stubborn racism found in the southern parts of the United States. In time, Dr. King began to appreciate the larger dimensions of racism. Instead of racism being just the bad habits of an individual or a small group of people here and there, or, or even just individual or group acts, he now connected racism to what he called, in his own words, the power structure. He states this and elaborates this point in 1966. 1967 speech where he says a basic problem in black life in North America was, quote, the lack of power which made black people subject to the white power structure, close quote. 
Now, this was a huge jump in his perspective on race relationships. Racism could not be ended only by changing the hearts of an individual or a group, which is fundamental to improving race relations. Of course, this was all important, and it was important to change the heart because Dr. King still kept his faith that there was hope for a new multicultural society someday. He still believed that the moral arc of the universe moved toward justice, and he still believed that ultimately, at some point in America, all races and ethnic groups could and would live together as sisters and brothers. It's just that by the end of his life, he had developed a more sober understanding, along with the important and foundational need to change hearts, the social and political and economic systems of the country, the structure of the country had to be completely revamped. Let us again hear the words of Dr. King. There is nothing essentially wrong with power, he starts. The problem is that in America, power is unequally distributed. This has led Negro Americans in the past to seek their goals through love and moral suasion, devoid of power, and white Americans to seek their goals through power, devoid of love and conscience. Dr. King goes on to say, integration is more than something to be dealt with in an aesthetic or romantic term. I think in the past, all too often we did it that way, and it ended up as merely adding color to a still predominantly white power structure. What is necessary now Dr. King concludes, is to see integration in political terms where there is a sharing of power. So I think what King is saying is that one group has a monopoly on power or has a disproportionate amount of power in a community, and then those without power are placed in that community, but that is not sufficient integration. He seems to be saying that that, that move is just mainly adding bodies to a structure that has not changed. The structure remains the same. The structure of power remains the same. No matter how many people are added, no fundamental shift has taken place. And so given his new development, developing views on the issue of integration, King was no longer interested in leading black people into any type of social relations where blacks and others of color would still be at the bottom. In fact, he strongly denounced a false kind of integration into the structures and systems of economic capitalism. Instead, he began to call for a new dream where new visions and new values helped to bring about a redistribution of resources in new social relations. Again, during the very last year of his life, King preached the following sermon where he proclaimed, quote, something is wrong with capitalism as it now stands in the United States. Black people are not interested in being integrated into this value structure. He goes on to say, because power must be relocated a radical redistribution of power must take place, close quote. So for King, true integration in social relations call for political reinterpretations of black and white relationships, one where there would be a sharing of resources among the different cultures of America. King moved in this direction because he said the spirit of freedom began to grasp him on a much more fundamental level. And he believed that the clarity of his ministry had become even more clear. And so he began to connect power
to politics in America. But he also began to link power to culture. Eventually, he saw the shallowness of black and white unity based on the negation of black culture. In the earlier parts of the civil rights movement, King never completely distanced himself from black culture. But he did emphasize that Negroes were part of a universal human nature. And even when the black power slogan hit the national conscience in June of 1966, King wanted to suggest that the word black be not used or adjacent to the word power. He had asked the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, Committee, for example, Stokely Carmichael, why couldn't they use Negro power? But as his own efforts, as King's own efforts to build his coalition of conscience continued to run up against the depths of racial discrimination in the North, and he saw the lack of progress for Northern blacks, despite all the glorious achievements of the Southern Civil Rights Movement, he began to appreciate the need for African Americans to have a firm sense of who they were as a cultural people. And so speaking at a 1967 staff retreat of his organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, King said the following, where do we go from here? First, we must massively assert our dignity and worth as black people. We must stand up amidst a system that still oppresses us, and we must develop an unassailable and majestic sense of values. We must no longer be ashamed of being black. Close quote. Despite his years of leading the glorious integrated civil rights movement with whites, despite his attempts to speak to the universal commonalities among all races, King began to conclude that black people were still oppressed based on their culture. Yes, they were more integrated with progressive whites in the movement, and their goals remained to integrate into the broader American society. 1964 had given them the Civil Rights Act, and 1965 had given them the Voting Rights Act. Other legal decisions had struck down segregation in eating, housing, unemployment, and other areas. These were important goals. But how could a people have any sense of their authentic self if they integrated with whites and at the same time believed that they were white? Did black folks have a history, a culture, a language, a dance, a song, a memory? Did black people have any contribution that was unique to them and at the same time was a contribution to the larger American community? And so at this 1967 SCLC staff retreat, at this meeting of national civil rights leadership who are retreating in order to figure out the direction and the next phase of the civil rights movement. King offers the first priority is affirming that it's all right to be black. He sums up where they have been at this retreat and, and he talks about the next move in the struggle for justice. And again, he says the very next task for blacks was a massive assertion of black dignity and worth. They had to unashamedly and publicly declare their blackness. They had to appreciate their history, their culture, their unique identity, and yes, their connection to Africa. King believed that blacks could never be what God made them to be and, and America could never reach its greatness until the culture and history and traditions of all its people of color were the norm for what it means to be an American citizen. He further went on to say that the progress of black freedom and race relations would come to a halt 
if African Americans did not free their minds from the racist restrictions of the structures in which they lived. And so King's position, his developing position, was not just a light argument just to be fashionable with the times. Just because a large part of the African American community were moving toward black culture, black consciousness, indeed some to black power, King was not just joining the bandwagon. He felt the spirit and souls of black people were dying when predominantly white institutions made white experiences the dominant reality and the norm for people of color. Unfortunately, during his time, many progressive liberals were willing to let blacks, brown, red, and yellow people into predominantly white institutions as long as people of color accepted that white authority and knowledge, mainstream history and experiences would be the norm and valued as the most valuable culture. And so at that 1967 staff retreat, King had to assert the importance for black people to stand up with their shoulders back and heads up to embrace their own culture. He concluded his remarks at the beginning of that staff retreat with these words. He says, quote, any movement for black freedom that overlooks the necessity of affirming black culture is only waiting to be buried. And he goes on to say, as long as the mind is enslaved, the body can never be free. Now, our, our review and sharing of some of the ideas of Reverend King at the end of his life, it's really just a glimpse of the contributions he's made to the United States and, in fact, the entire world. I think what he shows us is the importance of having faith in something greater than ourselves. Even if it means for us to face the fears and taking the road less traveled, it means heeding the vocation of witnessing outside of the box. Because Dr. King is a committed Christian and, and an ordained clergy person, the one who is set aside to proclaim, thus saith the Lord, this meant for King that he could always rely on God to carry him through. As he stuck to his vocation, as he began to, to move outside of what others had told him to, to stay inside of, he knew that ultimately he was accountable to the one on that cross. King also tells us to believe in ourselves. There, there, there were many times when the road seemed unclear for him, but he persisted because he believed that what he was doing was with his faith and what his faith called him to do. That is what Jesus preached that we should do. That we need to clothe the naked and feed the hungry and visit the prisoner. We need to provide water for the thirsty and fight for jobs for those who are unemployed and even take on the federal government and force it to heed the pains of the voices of America to challenge the wrong policies of our government as it fights wars abroad, to take on those who would deny power and culture and equality, not only for African Americans, but for all oppressed people of color. And so Dr. King followed this path of his calling. He followed this path upon which Jesus had called him, and as a result, he became a true witness, which really means a true martyr. For example, though everyone today, or the majority of Americans, North Americans, support King today, toward the end of his life, he was not as popular as we think. More and more, he was attacked and critiqued by the White House, by the Congress, by the U.S. military establishment, by J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI, 
even by his white funders, white liberals, and other Negro civil rights leaders, and even the tide of the press began to turn against him. But this lifestyle, a way of life of King, teaches us much about who we are and looking at him and what he did, what we should be doing today. Let me just touch on a couple of additional examples and lessons which I find helpful from studying the life of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. One thing that King teaches us is the need to take risk. The need to take risk not only in terms of our actions, but in terms of our imagination and vision of what a new America could be. A new multicultural America based on a spiritual emphasis of honoring people over things. I think he suggests that it would be an America that is concerned about the individual person and the well-being of the community. I think no longer in this new America will there be barriers to the full humanity of each person, exploitation based on economics and class, oppression based on race, discriminations of gender and sexual lifestyles will end. Likewise, the negative feelings, those demons, if you will, that are internal to each person's body will come to an end. When low self-esteem and negative anger and depression and other harmful psychic and spiritual wounds are done away with, each person, each of us can maximize the positive spirituality inside of each of us. And this is how we can reach our full potential and our full calling that has been put upon us. But this, this, this beginning of, of the change of the individual self is not a call. It's not a vision for individualism, which is simply a concentrated form of capitalist emphasis on me first. On the contrary, it reflects individuality. And individuality differs profoundly from individualism. Individuality calls for accountability and obligation to community. But with individualism, a person harms the individual self when let to live and think and be alone separate from the group. An individual left alone too often makes skewed decisions and opts for narrow actions just for the self or even just for his or her family. But this new vision of Dr. King's will require a new type of freedom where we are free to serve the collective interests of our society and our communities. For example, you may know of this West African philosophy which states that without community, a person is less than an animal. And so our final goal, this, this new America, this new vision, is to share in common all of creation. Instead of there being the value that we know so well, I think, therefore, I am, or I have a right to profit or make money, the key to the definition of being a human being will be, I am because we are, and I exist to share with the community. This new vision of a multicultural America that is inspired by Dr. King is a final goal, and it is deeply rooted in the Hebrew and Christian scriptures. We know in Christian tradition, Yahweh of the Old Testament promised a time and a place that Hebrew workers who were enslaved in Egypt would be set free. And God delivered on that promise. And then Jesus walked this earth, delivered his first public speech, which is found in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. And then Jesus went on to lay out the criteria. And as far as I, my read of the 66 books of the Protestant Bible, 
It's the only criteria that he lays out specifically on how to get to this new time and new place that some have called heaven. We find this reference in Matthew 25, verses 31 and following. Even in the book of Revelations, we find the word speaking about a new heaven in a new earth. And in the folk wisdom of many black believers, they describe what they mean about this new heaven and new earth when they say they'll meet you on the other side of Jordan where there's no more pain or sorrow, only happiness. And Martin Luther King Jr. gave his life for this new vision. To reach this vision, Dr. King teaches us to imagine and envision the poor, the least sectors of the society, and the marginalized people among us sharing in the wealth and resources of this land. And in that instance, a true majority, a true majority of society will govern. And with this condition in place, we can begin to talk about and hopefully implement issues such as universal health care, housing for all Americans, the right to be unemployed, meaning that you have a job so you can opt to be unemployed, the importance of vacations and recreations and education and daycare and, and all the issues that ensure quality of daily life for those who are suffering at the bottom of society. A major criterion will be in this new America, this new vision, is how we participate in the process of eliminating poverty and the host of related forms of brokenness in the human family. King suggests to us that through the majority of the society, a positive spirituality would lead and work with human beings to bring about a universal liberation and the practice of freedom for all of humanity. What King can teach us is that the sacred vocation of progressive-minded people is to empower the poor to work with them on their own negative spirituality and also participate in releasing them from structures that, create, that are created by a small elite group in America. So when we talk about liberation, it means removal from the internal grip of psychological demons and liberation from the external restrictions of sinful systems. As a result, we all can aid in gradually recreating a new individual personality and new social relations which will free even the small elite population amongst us. And in addition to suggesting this, this new vision, King, again, I want to come back to this point, urges us to consider seriously the Christian necessity and the risk of faith when we oppose the U.S. government and its thirst for oil in foreign lands. We know about his Beyond Vietnam speech on April 4th, 1967, at the Riverside Church in New York City, exactly one year before he was to become a martyr, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave the classic anti-war speech. Immediately after this historic Christian witness, Dr. King was opposed by the President of the United States. He was threatened by the Federal Bureau of Investigation and many other national civil rights leaders and even his sources of funding dried up. And even more close to whom, several board members of his own organization, the SCLC, thought about stepping down. He was told, in fact, he was instructed that the black church should stick to domestic issues of race relations singing gospel music, preaching that old-timey black 
sermons from the South. Stick to what you know, they told Dr. King. He was told that the black church should not mix international issues with domestic issues. You know, he said, keep the politics out of spiritual matters. You're not qualified for that. Just go preach and hoop. But despite these condescending instructions and in certain cases even lethal threats, Dr. King believed that failure to speak out when the U.S. government goes to war against a smaller country would be a prime instance when silence meant betrayal. He says, not betrayal of the United States, but betrayal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In any situation of superpower aggression, opposition to the thirst for oil through war is the best example of black homiletical preaching. As an ordained Christian pastor, King could not separate the lordship of Christ. For him, all reality was interconnected. That is why he wrote the following words. He says, now when I say question the whole of society, it means ultimately coming to see that the problem of race, the problem of economic exploitation, and the problem of war are all tied together. He says, a nation that will keep people in slavery for 244 years will thingify them, make them things. Therefore, they will exploit them and poor people generally economically. And a nation that will exploit economically will have to have foreign investments and everything else and will have to use its military might to protect them. And he says, all of these problems are tied together. I think what King is teaching us is that a future multicultural America has to be a global multicultural movement. It has to show a direct connection between our government acting as a superpower globally on the one hand, and on the other, it has to show the negative policies domestically, the same forces that benefit from a power structure and a redistribution of wealth upward in the United States. These same forces were the exact sectors that demonized people of color in the third world or developing world and made plans to steal their oil outside the United States. And in a similar way, money set aside for poor people and working families domestically would now have to be used for corporations that make products for war internationally. These are the types of issues that Dr. King was posing when he spoke out against the Vietnam War. In response, he was labeled unpatriotic, a communist sympathizer, and a supporter of terrorism. But King would not compromise the gospel of his faith. That is why he called the U.S. government in his own words in that 67 speech. He said, quote, the U.S. government is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, close quote. In King's eyes, war abroad meant economic and spiritual death for the disadvantaged within the borders of the United States. He makes this comment. You know, here we spend $35 billion a year to fight this terrible war in Vietnam. And just the other day, the Congress refused $44 million to get rid of rats in the slums and ghettos of our country. King saw a direct relationship between the billions of dollars that are spent on oil and other foreign wars, that there's a direct relationship between the money spent there and the lack of money spent here. King opposed the war in Vietnam because he felt that he was called to be consistently nonviolent. We know that he was a pastor of a local church. We know that he had received the Nobel Peace Prize. We know that he had continually talked to black power militants and young gangs in Los Angeles in northern cities to be nonviolent. And so for him, it was not a major leap to say that I'm tired of people killing people in the United States. And I'm also tired of us killing people abroad. It was a seamless connection. It was his faith 
It was his religion. It was his theological commitment to be consistent. How is it that we can say that we should turn the other cheek and be nonviolent at home amongst Americans and at the same time be violent abroad by bombing and destroying people's countries? For King, it wasn't a political tactic or, or maneuver or something to be uh, up to date on. It was not something he got out of a manual, of a civil disobedience manual. For him, nonviolence was personal. As we know, King refused to eventually even have guns in his house. We know that when his home was first bombed in Montgomery, deacons from his church and others came with shotguns and hunting rifles to surround his house. And he said to put those rifles down. We know that when he went to various areas of Harlem and Detroit and Los Angeles during riots, he told black gang members and everyday working class black people to put down your weapons, put down your bottles, put down your Molotov cocktails. He talked about resolving differences amongst gangs, having a halt on gang violence. Put down your weapons, cease your wicked words condemning one another. Then, during those times, he says, you know, it's very interesting. He goes on to say, they applauded us in the sit-in movement. They applauded us when we marched for nonviolence. They applauded us when we stood up to Jim Clark and Selma and Birmingham and Bull Connor and our children were bitten when fire hoses were put. They applauded us. But he says there's something strangely inconsistent about a nation and a press that would praise you when you say be nonviolent toward Jim Clark, but will curse you and damn you when you say be nonviolent toward little brown Vietnamese children. This is the reality and the voice of Dr. King. This profound sense of justice for the disadvantaged. The profound sense of those who have been cast aside in the marketplace of life, his profound consistency in nonviolence, in his personal life, in his family life, in his community life, in his church life, in his national life, and indeed in his international life. We can't support nonviolence at home without also calling for nonviolence abroad. And ultimately for him, it is that question of Jesus Christ. Now I just want to close with a quote that to me speaks so powerfully about who Dr. King was. It speaks to him not only as an individual, but it speaks to him as a child of God who had come to the point of his ministry where for him to be a human, he saw the humanity of himself and other humans who walk this earth, regardless of their political perspectives, regardless of their faith perspectives. He says these words. In fact, it was part of a sermon. He says, could it be that people do not know that the good news was meant for all men and women? It is meant for communists, and it is meant for capitalists, for their children, and for ours, for blacks, for whites, for revolutionaries and conservatives. Have they forgotten that my ministry is in obedience to the one who loved his enemies so fully that he died for them? What then can, can, can I say to the Viet Cong or to Fidel Castro or to Mao Zedong what can I say to them as a faithful minister of this, this, this one? Can I threaten them with death? Or must I not share with them my life? My brothers and sisters, I think that if we are all going to live together as one for a future world, we have got to embrace the gifts of all two-legged to walk this earth, in the phrasing, paraphrasing my Native American friends, 
And we've got to also embrace the ecology, the four-leggeds, the wingeds. We've got to also embrace those whom our government and others may call the enemy, the combatants. We, got, we killed 20 bad, bad guys this weekend. We've got to lift up the corpses of those bad guys and in their eyes see someone who is also a child of God. It's not to say that there's no such thing as right and wrong and differences, but it is to say that if we are to build a new America, then the future of that America will be based on the spiritual connection of one human to another. I hope that we continue to carry out the work of Dr. Martin Luther King as we strive to build an inclusive America that embraces all languages and races and all ethnic groups and genders and those who are born and those who are on their way across the waters to this land we call America. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Hopkins. And from our first um, exchanges, uh, looking to uh, Dr. Hopkins being with us, he asked that his presentation be coupled with a time for response, for conversation, and for asking questions and um, uh, interacting uh, with us. And so for the next 45 minutes, I invite all of you who are uh, able to join us uh, down the hall in the um, College Church Fellowship Hall. There's some coffee there, some cookies there. Um, Professor Regina Shan Stolzfus will be moderating about a 40, 45 minute uh, time of conversation with uh, Dr. Dwight Hopkins. Uh, we should wrap up uh, in time for lunch for those of, of you who are uh, eating in the cafeteria. Uh, and I also want to mention that uh, today during the lunch hour in the cafeteria, um, the men's choir will be performing a, um, a special arrangement of Precious Lord Take My Hand that they have been uh, practicing for, for this day. Uh, so those of you who are able, please join us in the fellowship hall. And uh, for everyone, may you take the spirit of this day through the rest of the day and in the year to come. Thank you.